helping students and healthcare professionals not just survive, but thrive with a purpose. This is the CMDA Student Pulse Podcast with your host, Bill Reichart, National Director of CMDA Campus Ministries. Well, welcome to another episode of CMDA Student Pulse Podcast. I'm excited to have Dr. Ingrid Skop here uh, from San Antonio, Texas with me. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you for having me. Well, let me just give uh, our listeners and viewers uh, just a quick bio. You are an OBGYN out of San Antonio, Texas. You've been practicing for about 30 plus years, but uh, even currently you joined the Charlotte Lozier Institute where you are the uh, Senior Fellow and Director of Medical Affairs. And uh, you are using your experience as an OBGYN to support research and policies that respect the dignity of every human life. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a minute. But Ingrid, I just wanted to kind of walk through a little bit of your story before we kind of get started on, on talking about some of these issues about life and so forth, and personhood and, and others. But why did you feel called to be an OBGYN? What, what, what called you into that particular specialty? I think it is true that I am really called to be an OBGYN. I, I feel passionate about the issue. I, I grew up in a pro-life family, the oldest of six children. My father was a pediatrician. So I, um, uh, just loved medicine and loved babies from a very early age. When I went to medical school and saw the first baby delivered, I said, this is it. This is what I've got to do. And um, I have never regretted it. It's hard, mm. but it's so rewarding. Mm. Has it gotten harder to be a person of faith, a Christian in that specialty? It has gotten harder, but I think all of us, when we look around, it's just harder to be a Christian in general, mm. anywhere, no matter what your profession today. But, but the good news is that if you are willing to let your light shine, mm. you really can make an impact. Well, you are letting your light shine and making an impact through the um, opportunities to talk into, I guess, public policy and and other research. And uh, tell us a little bit about the Charlotte Lazier Institute. What You've been doing that now for just a little under a year, I think, in, in your current role. Perhaps you were involved with them prior to that. But what, what exactly are you commissioned to do in this role? And, and how are you having an impact on this issue? So the Charlotte Logier Institute is a think tank um, that was developed by Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America. So SBA is a lobbying group. We're a nonprofit. They recognized that there was a need for evidence-based arguments to support the pro-life position. Unfortunately, I'm sure your listeners are aware, academia is overwhelmingly pro-choice. And most of the articles, most of the peer-reviewed um information is biased from a pro-abortion perspective. And so I'm just really blessed. I've, I've been associated with Charlotte Lozier for probably about four years as an associate scholar. We're a very lean organization. Um, we don't have a lot of full-time employees, but what we do is we tap people who are experts in their fields, neonatologists, obstetricians, bioethicists, whatever the need is, to have good information available, um, we communicate with people that we know can address those issues in a very professional fashion. So you're speaking to the issues of the day within the uh, public square, uh, doing the research, doing the thinking, and putting this in, in imagine into uh, uh, papers, and and uh, I think you present in front of uh, uh, legislators and and committees and 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 present these points of view. Now we're in a unique place, as we all know. We've we've mm-hmm. we fifty years of Roe versus Wade, and now Dobbs has come into play. And 
it, it has surprised, I think, a lot of people. Well, let me ask you this in terms of where we're at now. Where are we now on this issue of life and abortion? You know, it has been interesting to see this all play out. I think if you're, you know, maybe to back up for a minute to help mm -hmm. your audience understand where we've come from. So prior to Roe, a lot of people don't realize it, but there were states that had legal abortion. New York, California, Colorado. What Roe did was this was the Supreme Court deciding for social reasons and, and to some extent for eugenic reasons that they wanted abortion to be legal. And this was backed up by the professional medical organizations that have been progressive for years and years. So they, they put this forward. Roe did many things. It did not allow any restrictions at all in the first trimester. It only allowed a restriction in the second trimester if it was to benefit the safety for the woman. And in the third trimester, only then could restrictions be put in place. But a companion case that same day, Doe versus Bolton, mm -hmm. said that all restrictions had to allow an abortion if it would benefit the life or health of the mother. Life is obviously self-explanatory, but health was basically defined as well-being. Mm -hmm. So emotional, financial, age, you name it, any of those could be used as an excuse to do an abortion. So essentially for almost 50 years, states have tried to put restrictions in place and every time there's an immediate lawsuit and they've been struck down mm -hmm. as unconstitutional. So Dobbs was crucial and to many people unexpected. In that case, it was a Mississippi 15 week ban in that case, it was pointed out that it was very reasonable to limit abortion at that point. The United States is an outlier. We're one of only seven countries in the world that will allow an elective abortion after a baby has reached viability. Um, wow. I mean, most of the European countries limit it by 12 to 15 weeks. So Dobbs was a unique case because it was very, very reasonable. And yet it violated Roe. Mm. And so when the Supreme Court, interestingly, by a 6-3 vote, they voted to uphold the Mississippi law, but only by a 5-4 vote did they vote to overturn Roe because mm. Justice Roberts likes to walk a little, a middle line. Mm. So what that did, that did not make abortion illegal anywhere, but it just allowed the decision to return to the the legislature, right. the states immediately got on it, but I think we're seeing an effort for a federal legislation too. So it's not necessarily that it's only a state issue, but just that it's the people's elective representatives who should be mm -hmm. making this decision mm -hmm. and not um, judges who are unelected. And since that time, approximately half of the states have put restrictions in place. Many of them are heartbeat bans, some of them are total bans. So that's the world we're living in now, that many of these states are trying to implement these restrictions. Yeah, I, I know with our team here at CMDA, as they press into this issue, it, mm -hmm. it's become, uh, it, it's exponentially become uh, more uh, challenging only so far that now we're dealing with 50 plus of these conversations across the U.S. and, mm -hmm. and dealing with uh, different public policy issues at, at a state level, which is, which I do agree with you, is, is where it needs to be put into the hands of those you know, uh, that are elected by, by our citizens rather than a judicial fiat. And, and I think we're learning a lot. I know that some of the, uh, the legislative, well, I should say the elective uh, outcomes like propositions and, and other kinds of uh, things that have been voted on have, have not gone the way that uh, pro-life uh, uh, individuals would, would have hoped. And so it's, it's been, been, been challenging, has it not? A mixed bag a bit. It's been challenging, and I think a lot of the challenge is that the American people do not understand the issue. Okay. 
And that's why it's so important, the work that you're doing, the work that I'm doing to help people understand. Of course, one of the things that I'm sure all of your viewers have seen Mm -hmm. is immediate misinformation about what doctors can do to care for patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reality is elective abortion, ending a human life for social or financial reasons is really, it's very hard to justify that. And so what um, they're doing instead is they're making people fear the law by thinking that it will harm women. This is just not so. Mm. Every one of the laws, at at Lozier, we've looked at the wording on every law. Mm. Every law allows an exception and allows an abortion if it is needed to protect the life of the mother or to Mm. prevent severe irreversible organ damage. And it allows the doctor to use his reasonable medical judgment. So essentially he can follow the standard of care. Mm. None of the laws say it has to be an immediate risk. So if Mm. a woman has a severe heart defect and presents with a pregnancy early on, she may not be sick then, but we know that if it's a very severe problem, she may be very sick by the end of the pregnancy. So Mm. all of the laws allow the doctor to intervene at the time of diagnosis. Unfortunately, part of the problem is that, again, most of the mainstream medical organizations are very Mm pro-abortion. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists is my professional organization, ACOG, Mm -hmm. and they have wonderful evidence-based recommendations, practice bulletins, committees' opinions, to help doctors know how to practice their profession. And if you look at these, you will see if this is going on, they say that you can intervene by separating the mother from her baby. Now that can happen in various ways. It could happen as an abortion, but most of the time these really serious situations happen in the second half of pregnancy when a baby often can survive separated from his mother. So again, it doesn't have to be a D&E dismemberment abortion, which is the procedure that you would do at that time. It can be a medically indicated induction or perhaps C-section And it's a much more caring way to care for the baby if you can. If he can't survive, perinatal hospice allows him to be comfortable and his family to hold him and grieve him appropriately. Mm -hmm. But, But nonetheless, going back to the laws, they do allow doctors to do what they need to do. But organizations like ACOG, despite having given us the recommendations in other formats, have been silent and have opposed the laws but have not reminded doctors, by the way, we already told you when it's appropriate to intervene. Yeah. So it's yeah. a very frustrating situation because women are, you've seen the, the articles, women are being hurt because they're not being managed appropriately. Yeah, yeah. No, I think what you're doing is, you know, uh, effective in addressing head on the myths and the misunderstandings mm-hmm. the misinformation, which is out there. And, um, you know, giving people the right information so they understand the issue clearly. But um, it's a, again, it's it's a it's a long slog. It's going to take much prayer, much effort. It's a, someone said this is the not the end of the issue. It's the beginning of the end. It's the we're we're moving mm-hmm. into another another place, another phase in this. But mm-hmm. um, would you speak, Ingrid, into how this issue perhaps has even gotten more complicated with uh, the issue of chemical abortion? Because now that's uh, that's front and center. And would you just speak into that a little bit and some of the unique challenges and how this is changing the issue for us? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I would encourage your listeners, the medical students, as they're looking at, at the profession that they want to choose, mm. even if they're not going to be an obstetrician, this will impact them mm. because there is quite a bit of pressure for internal medicine, for family practice, even for pediatricians mm. to prescribe chemical abortion. And as we'll discuss, the FDA is removing all the supervision that will allow that to happen. Mm. But to start at the beginning... Chemical abortion is provided by two medications. Mifepristone blocks progesterone receptors, and so it cuts off the hormonal support and causes the embryo or the fetus to die. Hmm. And about 24 to 48 hours later, mesoprostol is given, which essentially induces labor. It causes the uterus to express the tissue that's there. The FDA over time has just progressively taken away any kind of supervision. Um, In 2016, Under Obama, they increased the gestational age from seven to 10 weeks, even though at 10 weeks it fails quite frequently. They said, you know what, we don't even care to hear about any complications unless the woman dies. Um, They did various other things at that time. Uh, Currently under the Biden administration, um, last year using the COVID pandemic as an excuse, they removed what had previously been in-person restrictions. So before, the doctor had to be in the room with the woman, looking her in the eye, making sure that she wanted the abortion, that it wasn't someone else who was coercing her. Um, They needed to do a physical examination. They needed to do an ultrasound, determine the gestational age, because many times women are mistaken about how far along in the pregnancy they are. Make sure it's in the uterus. Make sure it's not in a fallopian tube because mifepristone does not work on a tubal pregnancy. It will continue to grow. It may rupture. And women have died undergoing abortions when this was not diagnosed. They need to determine their RH status. Does the woman need a Rogam shot to prevent future pregnancy complications? None of those things need to happen anymore because of the FDA's um, decision last December. And unfortunately, just within the last week or so, the FDA made a new decision to allow it to be distributed through pharmacies. That's right. So, again, this allows it to be uh, prescribed by telemedicine. But even worse, it allows a woman to get online and to order it from an international distributor with no doctor involved, Mm. not even remotely, delivered to her mailbox, and then to be taken Maybe then, maybe a month later, you know, Mm. you just don't know what the scenarios are going to be, you know, is, does it, does her uh, coercive boyfriend who doesn't want a child order it and Mm. give it to her either secretly or force her to take it when no one is there to protect her? All of these things are starting to happen. Complications, just very briefly, Mm. when you look at the data, most of it comes from the abortion industry. They ignore the fact that many women with complications do not return to them. So they will typically have 15, 20% or more loss to follow up. And for the purposes of their studies, they assume those were uncomplicated abortions. Hmm. But as the doctor who sees the women in the emergency room, I can tell you many of those are complicated. Hmm. When we look at good records linkage studies internationally, where they actually care to have good data, Hmm. um, it looks like about three to 8% of the time the woman has a hemorrhage or infection or retained fetal tissue and needs surgery. And of course, with this being removed from the realm of medical supervision, all of these things are going to get worse. Well, thanks for laying out some of the challenges, certainly, and understanding of, of what's at stake. And of course, clearing up some myths and misunderstandings. 
I'd like to turn the corner a bit on our conversation because being a student podcast as it is and being our audience is mostly students, I'd like for you to have an opportunity now to speak to some of the students who are listening. By the way, you should have a unique interest, I would think, in, in medical students. I, I hear your son is an is a M1, is he not? He is. And yes, I absolutely have a heart for your audience. It doesn't seem that long ago that I was in medical school, but apparently it was. But going <laughs> through it with my son has just been a... A blessed experience. Mm. And just as I'm sure your your students listening, I've had the same conversation with Eli. What, what is going to happen? Do doctors of conscience, are we going to be able to get through the training? Are we going to be able to practice the way they w- that we want to? Mm. And the answer is doctors have got to stand up for their rights. That mm. right has not been taken away from us yet. But if we are fearful mm. and if we were quiet and if we don't insist that we want to practice Hippocratic medicine, then perhaps at some point that will happen. But the good news is we're not there. Mm -hmm. Doctors can still practice according to the way that that they Mm -hmm. want to practice. Now, of course, sometimes in medical school and perhaps residency, there may be times that it's wise not to take a stand, Mm. but there will be time. And I I think that if we, you know, if we pray and, and, and follow the spirit, that we'll know when it is a time to take a stand. Yeah. But I, I'm so glad that, that, that ethical providers are still going into medicine. It is absolutely mm-hmm. necessary. Yes. And uh, we've had multiple conversations. I say we, my staff and I, on this issue <laughs> because uh, so many times students will contact us saying how they've been challenged. Their faith has been challenged. Their ethical convictions have been challenged uh, on this issue or the sexual orientation, gender identity issue. There's a whole host Mm -hmm. of of things that have challenged them. And what we've been finding out oftentimes that the legal protections are often there. It's it's misinformation Mm -hmm. by others who insist Mm -hmm. that somehow they need to either remove themselves or be silent when, in fact, they need not have to do that, but it uh, mm-hmm. it does take unique courage and a uh, courage of a Daniel in in these days to to mm-hmm. often step up and step into these situations. Let me ask you about medical students that would like to contribute or influence the pro life conversation right now. Ingrid, what would you say to them? How can they how can they speak in and influence this conversation right now? Maybe in their uh, on their campus in their conversations with fellow mm-hmm. medical students. Well, I think the very first aspect is knowledge, Mm. really understanding the issues. And, you know, as you've mentioned, I work for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, Mm -hmm. um, Lozier.org. The American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists is Mm aaplog.com. And even if you're not going to go into obstetrics, you can find good statements there helping to explain the Mm -hmm. medical issues related to abortion. So the the students who can explain explain this to their peers, mm-hmm. perhaps even to their, you know, fellow physicians. This is very, very helpful to have that knowledge. They, they should have very good knowledge about how to evaluate studies. As I mentioned, the abortion industry is throwing out studies. The journalists don't really understand it all. So they very obligingly will promote these studies. As an example, recently, there was an, an article that said that maternal mortality was higher because of the pro-abortion laws, but I mean, the pro-life laws. But as I told you, those laws just went into effect this year. Maternal mortality, there's a lag. So the, looking at data from 2017 to 2019, they tried to make the case that these recent laws caused women to die. You know, I mean, obviously that's a very, you know, easy thing to spot if you're well-trained. 
I think that students, and of course, CMDA has quite a bit of information, I know. APLOG likes to give students scholarship to their educational convention every year. Mm -hmm. So if you're interested in being with other students who think like you, Mm -hmm. you know, look look at their website and and attend that conference. Start or join a pro-life group in your own school. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to do a round of some schools in Texas. So maybe some of your listeners will get a chance to hear me when I go around. But these groups, you know, again, can encourage each other. And, and just, you know, I, I think that that's crucially important. If you feel like you're the only one, it's yeah. much, much harder to step up and to speak out. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let me emphasize all those are great resources, Ingrid. And I, I'd say you're right. CMDA has some great position and policy statements on the, on mm-hmm. the issue of abortion, personhood, all kinds of things that are relevant. Um, more than perhaps one person could read, there's almost 90 or so of these statements. And they're done, well done by our ethics committee. They're very well vetted, very well thought through mm-hmm. um, and uh, are available on our website. And and the things that you mentioned and that we'll, we'll try to link into our show notes and, and elsewhere. So people have access to that. I do want to go back. I know we've, this is some ground that we've touched briefly, but I'd like to go back to this idea of a, of a Christian student. Cause this, this, I've been told that these are real conversations that happen. Many of our, our healthcare mm-hmm. professionals are, as they're mentoring students and they're talking to students, these are the concerns that they have. They're saying, I'm, I'm a pro-life student. I'd like to consider being an OB, OBGYN as a specialty, but they're worried. They're worried, you know, will I be forced to perform an abortion in my residency? Am I going to be, you know, am I going to have to violate my conscience? Can you speak into that? Just uh, maybe deal with whatever those fears or concerns are, or, you know, how would you challenge a student that may come to you with that concern or question? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked because there is absolutely a need for passionate pro-life students to go into obstetrics and I'll give a little just um, advice, if I may, at looking at residency programs. Yes. There are programs that are called abortion opt-in and abortion opt-out training. Hmm. And so if, as I went to a program that was opt-in, so you don't have to do training unless they'll, op- they'll give you the option to train, maybe mm-hmm. a local Planned Parenthood, and you can opt into doing that training. So that's the most preferable way mm-hmm. to go because you have to make a decision to provide abortion. Opt out is the opposite. They're gonna assume that you're gonna train to provide abortions, but Mm. if you want to opt out, you can. So they're not legally required to make you do it, but I think we all recognize there will be this pressure, Mm -hmm. right? You know, Mm -hmm. they're, they're not gonna hold a gun to your head, but it's much more difficult to get out of doing abortions if you're in an opt out program. But nonetheless, if you're, you know, if you're strong, you can do that, but typically you'll have to take on other responsibilities. There may be a little friction with your fellow residents that they think they're doing more work because you're not doing this work. But Mm. there are some programs um, that you should look out for. There are programs that advertise themselves as Ryan training programs, R-Y-A-N. That is a very pro-abortion funding that came from University of California, San Francisco, Warren Buffett to train abortion mm. providers. So if you're looking at a program that says it's it's a it's affiliated with Ryan, mm. that's going to be one that's really going to pressure you to do abortion. Mm. I would recommend go to a state that now has abortion restrictions in place. Mm. In Texas, they're they're currently sending um, residents to New Mexico to train, but mm. that's actually illegal. Mm. They can't use state funds to train for abortion. So I think states are going to tighten up on this as soon as they recognize what's mm. happening. 
And so if you're in a state with abortion restrictions, very likely you're not going to be asked to do abortions because there aren't going to be any abortions to be mm. done. Mm. So those are just all some useful things to know. But this is very important. Polls tell us that only 7 to 14% of practicing OBGYNs will perform an abortion if their patient requests it. Mm. So even though the students, of course, in an academic setting are probably led to believe that all obstetricians are pro-choice, the reality on the ground is nearly 90% of us are not doing abortions. Mm. So if you can get through your residency program, you can practice the way that, that mm. you want to on the other side. Like I say, it's it's unfortunate that there's so much pressure on mifepristone. I am a little concerned yeah. about that, that there will be pressure on doctors to prescribe it. But you can always say no. I mean, we still live in a country where yeah. we can say no to things that violate our conscience. Well, I also know that it's putting the feet to the fire on our Christian pharmacists now. They're, they're going to yes. they're also mm -hmm. on the front lines of that issue. And so, yeah, I think to the point that, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, the, the life issue, abortion, uh, the SOGI issues, people in medicine, even dentistry, uh, any kind of healthcare profession are going to be faced with ethical challenges no matter where mm -hmm. they happen to be. It's, yeah. It almost becomes inescapable. I, I did want to circle back, though, to some of the things you mentioned, which were very helpful, Ingrid. I really appreciate the things to kind of keep an eye out for, for residencies. Are most of those fairly transparent? Are they easy to find, like an opt-in, opt-out? Do they... Is that easy to unearth those kinds of things, or does it take a little research to figure those things out? It may take a little research. Um, right. When I was on the board at APLOG, we tried to come up with a comprehensive list, and mm -hmm. we just it was very difficult to do. Yeah. Although, as students go through this process and discover things, by all means, reach out to APLOG so we can begin putting together mm -hmm. a list just to help people know, don't waste your time with that program. Well, Ingrid, we've covered a lot here, and we could go deeper yet still. There's so much to talk about. So maybe a couple things as we close our time. First of all, are there any resources? I know you mentioned several, and, and those are all good. Or anything else that might help a student who wants to press in on the pro-life arguments, you know, have better some, some research and be better informed, I should say, to, to these issues? Is there any place that you'd recommend a student to go? And then just in closing, is there anything you'd say to students, just encouraging them as they walk this journey? especially in these days that uh, the cultural winds are, are becoming, you know, the storm clouds are, 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 are foot. I mean, there's a lot of challenges. There's strong headwinds that students are facing uh, ethically. So um, what would you say to them? Well, in terms of the education, like I mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, the places that we discussed, it's good to be able to have the complete pro-life argument. And there's some amazing books that have been written um, that I'm sure they can easily discover to help okay. them, you know, but, but the, the reality is that there are people who will admit, readily admit, this is a living human being, and they still say it's okay to kill it. Mm. So just making the point that this is human life mm. is not enough. Mm. So, and most of the arguments in favor of abortion are that it will improve the life of the mother, right? Mm -hmm. So as right. much as we can make an argument for, for example, a woman is six times as likely to commit suicide in the year after an abortion than after childbirth. Hmm. So the more we can make arguments like that and say, it's not good for women, hmm. you know, and I could, we could do an entire another podcast where I outline all the reasons it's not good for women, hmm. but you know, that, that information is available, but to be able to make that, that argument, I think is, is crucial. Hmm. It's terrible for the baby that it hmm. kills, but it also harms that woman. And so that I'm hoping is the way that we move forward change hearts and minds. Mm. 
you asked me to give encouragement to the students and I just, I've been blessed to have this career. I love it. I'm passionate about it. There are many great careers, but this one just is the full package. I mean, we are dealing with people in life and death situations. And again, we need to have doctors who practice a two patient paradigm that the woman and the baby are both of their patients. They both deserve their love, their respect, their protection. And I'm not discouraged. It is a weird world and there are Mm. storm clouds, as you say, but we know that we're on the right side and it's Mm. worth fighting for. Mm. Amen. (laughs) Well, thank you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Ingrid Scott, for uh, being a part of this conversation and being able to share your, not just the information, but I think what really becomes important and what comes through our time together is that students are able to see someone like yourself who is a, a lover of Jesus, who, who is, who's a Christ follower, who, who wants to walk faithfully with Christ and is living that out within the medical profession in the specialty that you are. And um, I think that's an incredible encouragement to the students that are, will have a chance to uh, watch or listen to this podcast. So thank you again, Ingrid. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This is the part of the podcast where we tell you some things that you need to know. The first is the Remedy Missions Conference. If you're thinking about missions, want to learn more about missions, how you can do it, either walking across the street in your community or around the world, this conference is for you. We have two opportunities to attend. We have a West Coast Conference and an East Coast. The West Coast Conference is at Cal Baptist University, February 24th to the 25th. And the East Coast Conference is April 14th to the 15th at Liberty University. To get more information and how to register, go to remedy.cmda.org. And then I just want to remind you that our CMDA National Convention is coming up April 27th to the 30th in Cincinnati, Ohio. This is a fantastic opportunity to meet other Christian healthcare professionals. And we don't want you as a student to miss out on this opportunity. So we've got some special deals for you. Scholarship money that will cover your registration as well as parts of your housing and travel expenses. But to find out how to do that, how to get access to that scholarship money and to apply, you'll need to go to this website, cmdastudentlife.org slash NACON. And we'll make sure to put these links in our show notes as well. And then lastly, don't forget to download the CMDA Student Life app. On it is a host of resources, small groups, Bible studies, this podcast, and just so many tools and resources that are, that are important for you, your faith, and for your work with CMDA. So make sure you go on the App Store or the Google Play Store and simply search for CMDA Student Life and download the app. And as always, you can find us on our social media sites using the handle CMDA Student Life. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Well, as always, we're just so thankful that you joined us for this episode of CMDA's Student Pulse Podcast. We look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. CMDA's Student Pulse Podcast is a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the organization. 
CMDA is non-partisan and does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on Student Pulse podcast reflects judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members.